turn with me to Revelation 17, which is on page 1,245. Someone's taken mercy on me this morning and not asked me to read 17, 18, and 19 in their totality. Praise God. So we're just going to um, read sections of it. So what I'll do is I'll just flag when we're moving and let you know where we're going. We're going to start in 1 to 6 of um, chapter 17. <clears throat> One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names, and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. We're going to move to 18, verses 1 to 8. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has been given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart, she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I'm not a widow. I'll never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. And then 19, 1 to 9. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. 
Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. There's a difficult question that um, Christians have always had to navigate, and it's how we relate to the culture and the world around us. How at home should we feel and be? In the, in the here and now, because there's this really cool thing about Christianity, and that's that it can find its place and its home in any culture, in any part of the world, at any point in history and in any society. It adapts itself to different contexts and situations. It doesn't impose a particular cultural norm wherever it spreads, or at least not, not as long as it's done rightly. And it doesn't retreat from society around it in most cases. Jesus himself said to us, I am not taking you out of the world, but I'm leaving you in the world. Be in the world, but not of it. He also said, be uh, salt and light in the world around uh, around you, didn't he? What would it look like to work that out in practice? In the world, not of it. Salt and light. Generally, I think at the Gate Church, we tend towards um, being pretty at home in the world and the culture around us. So we, um, on the surface, we don't look that different to people around us. We kind of dress the same. We kind of have similar homes, similar jobs and hobbies, often very similar lifestyles. We kind of just fit into the city of Birmingham and the culture and the life around us, don't we? But therefore, there is a spiritual danger for us here. And it is this, that... The world around us isn't just some neutral space, but it's trying to press us and trying to squeeze us into a particular mold and shape us in its image. Actually, it seduces us to become just like it. Not just in cultural form and expressions, but actually in substance and at heart. So we need to be careful if we feel really at home in the world around us, and we need to be alert as Christians to that reality. Now, while we can and should be in the world, Jesus sends us into the world, and while we uh, should and can enjoy the gifts of the world around us and society around us that come with that, we must learn how not to be of it. And we're moving into this this final section in Revelation. For those of you who've been with us, it's the final room in the the art gallery tour. And we're moving on from what we've been in in the last room, these action replays of history that we've been coming through. And now we're, we're really going to the future perspective. Finally, in Revelation 17, we get to the, to the future. Uh, uh, but that future perspective should shape our life in the here and now. What we're seeing in these last few weeks are the final triumph of Christ over his and our enemies and all things being renewed. Uh, and what is clear today, as it has been throughout Revelation, is that there is no such thing as neutral ground. There's no such thing as a neutral person. Switzerland just isn't an option here. And Revelation 17, that Kath read the first bit of us to, do have it open, page 1245, is the clearest depiction we've had yet in this book of the Roman Empire of the first century. 
but also of all human society and power that has no place for God in it, but is in rebellion against him. And what we get in these three chapters, Revelation 17 through 19, are, are the future destiny of these two figurative women. We've got a prostitute and a bride. And they represent two communities, two societies, two sets of values, two ways of living life in the world. And they show us two futures that they head towards. Now, this is a heavenly perspective on life in the world. And it's a heavenly perspective on the prevailing culture of our day that we live in. And we must remember that we are not neutral in this. There's two places we can be. Each of us belongs to a side. And the question it would be good for us to think as we go through is, which side do I belong to? It's, it's, um, it's either what Christians have for a long time called the city of man, here called Babylon, the prostitute, or it's the city of God, the new Jerusalem, the bride. And what we're going to see is that we're invited to be, uh, we're invited to, um, by both of them, to be with them and to be part of them. Both of them are beckoning and calling out to us and inviting us in. And so it's also worth considering who we're listening to. 17 verse 1, John's invited by um, an angel with one of these bowls uh, that we were looking at last week to come and see the punishment of the great prostitute and we read that he's carried away in the spirit and he sees this beautiful woman and she's dressed in fine linen purple and scarlet she's glittering with gold she's got precious stones and pearls and there she is sitting on this beast with seven heads and ten horns and she's drinking from this golden cup filled with the blood of God's faithful and holy people and she is drunk on the blood of God's people that she has been downing literally she is bloodthirsty And this woman has tattooed across her forehead Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. This is a terrifying image, isn't it? Now now we're told, we didn't read it, but in verse 18 of, of chapter 17, we're told who she represents. She is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. This is none other than than first century Rome, the eternal city in its great empire which had conquered all of the kings of the earth in that day and overtaken and ruled the world. But you hear her name is Babylon. So she's not just Rome, but she's also clearly ancient Babylon, an earlier great empire who had overtaken all of the, the world at that time and conquered and overcome the people of God. And Babylon itself was a copycat of the first human society in a place called Babel back in Genesis 11, where people came together to do life in God's world without God. And people came together to uh, not just do life in God's world without God, but build a society together in rebellion against God and in rejection of God to make themselves great. Grasping at the divine together, making a, a name for ourselves rather than God. So Babylon is taking God out and putting man or humans where he should be. Listen, the, the Roman emperor, emperors are of of the day this was written in the first century, were pretty explicit about it. They would, they would claim these divine titles. They'd make people call them Lord and Saviour and things like that. And, and others, Nero in particular, would claim to be able to do divine things. So there was this belief that he was going to rise from the dead and, and, and some people thought that happened. And, 
And so Babylon is a nickname in the Bible for any system, any empire, any authority of the world that has no time and no space for God. It is the city of man. And so it is every and any society, it is every and any culture, it is every and any city or business or organisation or club, it is every and any community or family that exists without reference to God in the world that he has made. And so for us today in, in, in Birmingham in, in 2021, it's most supremely, I think, the empire of the Western world's. It's not a single nation, it's not a single ruler, it's this complex alliance of nations and political powers and authorities and big business and big media and big culture all kind of coming together. It's kind of the powers that be of our day. And all of it so often has no place and no desire for God. It's absent of him. The God who made us and the God who loves us says, no thank you. Has no intention to honour him, no concern for his glory, and its only driving concern in the end is for self, for people, and our glory and our greatness. Well, there, there is something of, of a mystery here that needs to be um, explained to John and us. So we didn't read it, but that's what happens in chapter seventeen, verses seven to eighteen. The, the angel is explaining the mystery of these things. To John. Now it's all quite intricate and it's a little confusing. There's a succession of kings and powers and authorities. There's lots of overlapping imagery as we see in Revelation often. And listen, you, you could tie yourself in knots trying to kind of get really specific about it and, and, and map out particular rulers and particular empires and particular kings and, and kind of playing where's Wally with world leaders in Revelation 17. You just, you'll make a mess of it. This isn't a puzzle to be decoded, but this is a truth of reality to be revealed. And the basic essence is clear. And we're already familiar with much of it, aren't we? We've met some of these characters before. We've seen this imagery in Revelation. The red dragon that this woman sits on, seven heads and ten horns, and these blasphemous names written on him. Well, he's the beast of chapter 13. It's the world powers and authorities who do the bidding of Satan in the world. And here they are again with, um, with, with these claims of power in these horns and this crown of authority on their heads, siding not with God but jumping into bed with the opponents of God. And there may be a great variety of people through history and in time and place who step into this role and, and play this part. They come and go in this position. But all of it is human society rebelling against God. Whether it's the president of a great nation, the boss of a company, the most influential person in the room at any one time. And, and you see, they share one purpose, verse 13 and 14. It, this, this is the really important thing. Their one purpose is this, to wage war against the Lamb of God who gave his life for us all. That's the thing that unites them. We'll come back to that in a moment. But you see, the really striking thing about Babylon, this woman, is that she is so striking. Babylon is beautiful here. She's dripping with seduction. You should see it coming, shouldn't you? A lady with a, with a pet dragon, you kind of know you've got to be careful with her. And yet, 
She looks so, so good. She's all dressed up in this fine clothes and this jewellery and she whispers so seductively, I've got luxury, I've got sensuality, I've got pleasure, I've got riches, I've got wealth, I've got prosperity, I've got health on offer, I've got success, I've got power, I've got respect, I've got security, I've got peace, I've got life to the full and I'm offering it to you and you can have it without God. Human life and society without God makes such great boasts, such claims of what it gives us, doesn't it? Just think, you know, you're watching your, um, your favourite, I don't know, your favourite series, your box set, whatever, and, and, and kind of, you're not, you're watching the series, but what pops up for two minutes in the middle are the adverts, so you're not even there for them. And yet, in, in those two minutes that you're not really interested in, you're promised power and success and sex appeal and fame and respect and paradise from like a toothbrush and a deodorant and a holiday, you know, it's ridiculous, isn't it? And this is all from a way of the world without the God who made us. And it offers us so much and it's so seductive and it's so alluring and it so, looks so good and it's so beautiful. So that's why this prostitute is sat by many waters, which in verse 15 we're told represents many peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. She's propositioning herself, putting herself out there, making herself available. Come and join with me. There she is, seductively dressed like a prostitute, alluring us to join her in her rebellion against God. Now listen, it's graphic imagery, isn't it? It is graphic imagery. It's somewhat repulsive, and it's supposed to be, because we're meant to feel it in our gut as much as we're meant to understand it in our head. Just remember that the sexual imagery it's being tapped into is, is much more than this. It's this idea of, this, of, of kind of all of this rebellion against God and all of this um, rejection of God. And, and, and it's a bigger idea here than what we might think of when we hear the word prostitute. We might think of a, a vulnerable woman who's been used and abused and even trafficked into this prison of prostitution. And, and that's not really what's being tapped into here. No, this character is wanton and free in her unfaithfulness and her rebellion. She is deliberate in going after and drawing people into that. And the terrifying thing is, is that she's really, really good at it. She succeeds. Verse 2. The inhabitants of the earth are intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth are taken in. You know, when... When you're offered it, it can all be about you. It can all be for you and your comfort and your glory. You kind of think, why wouldn't you? And yeah, the emperors of the old did it. But another political scandal for us this week of how politicians use their privilege to be on the take for themselves, eh? Still at it today. But before we get too critical of them, are we much better ourselves? You see, she is so alluring that John himself, Jesus' best friend, the disciple who Jesus loved, well, he's almost taken in himself. Verse 6, he is astonished. He's greatly astonished as he looks at her. There's at least a hint here as as he looks at her of admiration and and he marvels and, and he wonders and he sees her great beauty and her great boasts and all that she offers to him and he's starting to be taken in. You think, John, no, are you crazy? Can't you see the, the beast that she's, that she's sitting on and that she's drinking the blood of God's people? Can you not see that she's not for you and she's not good for you? It's clearly a baited hook. And yet, he is at least to some extent captivated by her beauty. 
like that fly that's drawn to the light, for at least a moment, blinded to her true nature. And can't we be just as intoxicated at times ourselves? Can't we just as easily be allured by the promise of life to the full without God? We know the holiday won't give us paradise, but it doesn't stop us hoping. We know career success won't give us the peace we so crave, but it doesn't stop us looking for it. We know that the power that we want won't steal our restless souls, but we don't stop grasping. We know the website won't give us intimacy, but we still go looking. So easily taken in by what we know is wrong, what we know doesn't deliver, by even what we know to be evil. And so, so the angel reveals the mystery to John and kind of brings him back to reality. You see, what John needs to see is that these promises are empty. Babylon can't back it up. Life in God's world without God always ends in despair and destruction. You see, Babylon wages war against the Lamb, yes, but verse 14 promises that the Lamb will triumph over here, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Verse 17, it's God whose, um, whose purposes win out in the end. God achieves his purposes in the world. And so what we have in, in, in chapter 18 is John um, sees and hears about the ultimate fall of Babylon the Great. It's announced by this angel, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. And so from this great height, this great height of boasting and, and pride and, and all of these offers that the city of man makes, it's reduced to a wasteland. A little poem at the beginning of chapter 18. A dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit and every unclean and detestable animal. It's shown for what it really is. It turns out that all that reached up into heaven in the end was the sins for which it has been brought low. And so human society that's built without God and against God in the end will be brought down. In fact, as that happens, as everything starts to uncoil, we see that that kind of, there's all of this infighting that comes out in this, kind of, in this relationship between the beast and, and the woman. Just It falls apart and the, the beast uh, turns on her and, and, and consumes her and he, he's done with her now, so you know, he so just destroys her. Listen, this, this, is, this is speaking of the judgment that came on, on, on ancient Babylon and was soon to come on the Roman Empire uh, in, in the years that followed this followed this, which kind of Rome famously turned in on itself and its gluttony and its immorality and just kind of, I don't know, it kind of decayed from the, from the inside out. And so now all of the wealth and, and the splendor of that great eternal city lies in ruins and tourists pay 20 euros to walk around and you know, have a look at the ruins of, of, of Rome's splendor. But this is also about the ultimate fall of all the empires of this world, the ultimate end of all human society that's arranged in opposition against God and his people. It's a promise that God will put an end to people in his world doing life without him. And for all of the seduction and all of the promise and all of the allure and, and the way it looks so beautiful and so enticing, it turns out the invitation of Babylon is to nothing more than a funeral and a ghost town. And it's a helpful perspective for us, right? Because the message is, to the church, resist her. 
Resist her seductions. 18 verse 4. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so you will not receive any of her plagues. It would be easy if we could move away from a place called Babylon and we could actually physically remove ourselves and, and that would sort the problem. But it doesn't because Babylon is everywhere, including in our hearts. And Jesus calls us to be in the world, but not of it. So we have to live amongst and amidst Babylon and yet come out of her and yet resist her seductions. Resist her offers to life in all its fullness and see where life without God is heading and where it ends up. And we need to run like the wind from it. Come out of her, my people. You know, often in the church, we talk with, um, in the UK today, we talk with worry and fear about this persecution that we might see coming over the hill and how hard it's going to be to be a Christian in the coming years. And yet we hardly have ever talked about the seduction that is here now. And it is all around us and it is all pervasive in abundance. We're not nearly worried enough or on our guard enough about that. So we're thinking, where is Babylon most seducing you right now? Where do you need to come out from her? That's, that's, that's the first woman. It's two women here, isn't it? And so that's, that's the prostitute. That's Babylon. That's the city of man. The second woman depicted for us in these chapters is the beautiful bride, the new Jerusalem, the city of God. And listen, this is the cause for us to rejoice. Babylon, to we, we are to resist. And the bride, we are to rejoice in and with. That's what happens in chapters 18 and 19 is is we get a load of responses to the fall of Babylon. Revelation's mostly um, a picture book and 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 uh, visions and images, but now it shifts gear to be about what we hear more, and that's been on the way throughout as well. And and so firstly, from verse 9 of of, of 18, you've got three responses of woe and mourning to the fall of Babylon. This is how the powers that be respond, the political and economic powers who have jumped into bed with this human rebellion against God, the kings of the earth, the merchants and the sailors who have made great wealth from this world system, where they weep and they mourn. They they didn't do that because they care for or about Babylon, but because of what they've lost. They were using her to get a good life. And now she's been brought low, then their chance at the good life has gone. They shared in the luxuries of life without God. They got rich on the excesses of empire. They put all of their eggs in that basket and now they realise they've lost. They shared in her spiritual adultery and her rejection of God. And so now all they're left with is weeping and uh, mourning and woe. And just before we go on, it's just a side note here, but I think it's helpful to, to see that there's an insight here into the excesses and the exploitation that are always stitched into the world system. The glories of Babylon with its famous hanging gardens and, and the glories of Rome with its festivals and feasts built on the excess of wealth and the exploitation of the vulnerable. As are many of our privileges and our comforts today, from our fast fashion to our tech developments, it's, it's the haves taking advantage of the have-nots. It's so important to us that we measure how successful, how good a country is by what it's producing and how much money it's making and, and its economic performance. And we so often measure the worth of a person by how much they're making financially and how much they're worth and how much they own. We made buying and selling not just a means of getting the things that we need to get by in life, but as a way of life, a, a way of understanding and forging our identity, a way of seeking life to the full, as the adverts so often offer us. 
It's a way of giving in to Babylon's seductions. So I wonder if a particular point of application for us today is thinking about how and what we consume. How we shop and buy. and Those things are probably more important than we often think or realise. I wonder if that shows how much Babylon has got hold of us. But those are the three responses of woe. And then followed in, in chapter 19 by three responses of joy and celebration. There's these three hallelujahs. That just means praise the Lord from the servants of God, from the great multitude in heaven, and then from the uh, 24 elders and the four living creatures around the throne, and then from a great multitude on earth. And they all cry out together, hallelujah, praise the Lord, a sound we read like a roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder. And as you you read these songs in chapter 19, they're rejoicing in this ultimate, uh, the fall and the ultimate defeat of the world system that's opposed to God. It's being brought down. This system uh, that has opposed God's people and is drunk on their blood. They rejoice that that the salvation and the glory and the power belong to our God whose judgments are trust and true. They rejoice that the Lord God Almighty reigns. And finally, that the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. The bride is dressed up in her fine linen of righteous acts of God's holy people, bright and clean, given her to wear. You see, the reason that the imagery of the, um, of the prostitute seducing us into adultery is so provocative and, and so compelling is because throughout the Bible, there's this imagery of marriage and covenant faithfulness. That's... That's the imagery that the Bible uses to describe God's, God's intention and his plan and his design for his relationship with people and our relationship to him. So the Bible is full of descriptions and poems and songs celebrating God as a loving and as a faithful and as a long-suffering husband who gives himself to us and for us, most ultimately and supremely, of course, at the cross where Christ lays down his, his life for us. This other-giving love that pours itself out in love and generosity and kindness to us for our good. And so in this imagery, we are betrothed to God. We are, we are given to him, and he delights in us as a people who are made for this intimate and loving and delightful relationship with him. We're made for this marriage of love and this marriage of intimacy and care and faithfulness and joy and delight and other service with God. And and so the adultery of Babylon and drawing people away from that relationship with God and and towards unfaithfulness to the God who made us and loves us, to people to to reject him, to embrace other things as God in his place, which are no gods at all, is not only destructive in the end, but it's an all-out assault on God's plan and his purposes and his goodness and his glory. And yet it is one that doesn't have the final say. You see, there is joy here in Revelation 19 for those who know that they are blessed because they'll be at the wedding supper of the Lamb. There is joy and rejoicing for the people of God for your final destiny. Destiny is not a funeral and not a ghost town, but it is the wedding party to end all wedding parties. The prostitute seems so beautiful, doesn't she? But in the end, it is the bride that is clothed in this beautiful 
dress and this beautiful bright and clean clothes. She is the truly beautiful one. She wears the fine linen of Christ's righteousness which has been given to her to wear. It's not her own righteousness. It's not her own goodness and perfection, but it's his given to her. And so today, being the bride of Christ doesn't seem alluring. It doesn't seem beautiful. It doesn't seem like you have life to the full. Right now, being the bride of Christ, being one of God's people in his church, feels kind of weak and kind of small and kind of pretty insignificant and sometimes fairly tattered and dirty and... Meanwhile, Babylon's out there looking all shiny and bright and beautiful and good. But one day we will be radiant in beauty. One day we'll have the joy of a wedding. For blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Listen, you are not an unfaithful prostitute. You've been made beautiful by Christ. You are his bride. So this is a day. And this text is an occasion of great joy and rejoicing. As it will be when these things come to pass in the future. You see, Babylon tries to seduce you still. But will you let King Jesus, the faithful bridegroom who died to make you beautiful, will you let him win your heart? Will you let him win your heart again and again? Resist the seductions of this world system and all it offers you. And do it by realising that in Christ, you have all you need. You couldn't want more. You always have better than the world comes to offer. You belong to Christ. You don't belong to the world. You are his and you are not anyone else's. And so seek to live for him. Seek to know your life and your joy in him. Resist those who would seduce you away. Come out of Babylon, people of God. And come to the wedding party of the Lamb. And so let us rejoice, let us be glad, and let us give him all the glory. Let's pray together, George, you can come up as we do that. Christ, we thank you for your beauty and your greatness. We thank you for the beauty and greatness which you have given to us. Those who are your people who have put their faith in you are your bride and your delight and your love and your joy. Lord, we experience that by faith now and so strengthen our faith, strengthen our resolve. We know all we have in you. And so we would resist the seductions and the temptations of our day and age. And Jesus, come quickly. Bring down this world that is opposed to you and renew all things, we pray. For your glory and our good. Amen.